The events of today are remembered in the church calendar as Palm Sunday, the time in which Jesus officially presented himself to the nation of Israel as their promised Messiah. But in particular, for God's people, as we reflect upon the beginning of this week, we are looking at the most significant event in all of human history. And that event has to do with the rejection by the nation of Israel of their promised Messiah, the fact that he was condemned to death and died a death on the cross and then was raised again on the third day. In fact, when we look at all of human history, it points to the reality of this work of Christ. When we think about what it means to be a Christian without the reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a worthless religion. It is all based on the integrity of who Christ is and what Christ has done. In the same way, when we open the Bible, we find that God has a master theme that is included within the Scripture. And that master theme is to present the promised Messiah who would first suffer before he would enter into glory. And as you and I remember from the stories we read and we've had recited to us about the events associated with the death and the resurrection of Christ and the instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples, starting with Moses, he began explaining to them how God had woven together this wondrous truth that the Messiah would first suffer before he enters into glory. Because of that, I'd like us to turn back into the Old Testament. I'd like us to look at a portion of Scripture that refers to the sufferings of the promised Messiah and the glories that are yet to follow. And where I'd like us to do our meditation today is in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, as we read in the superscription, or what would be the introduction or verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible, it says, For the choir director, upon Ihaleth Hashahar, a psalm of David. The tune that this is to be sung to was the hind of the morning. And we notice that it is a psalm that was written by David, and he intended it for its use in public worship and given to the choir director for the Levitical singers to sing it to the congregation that they might meditate upon the truths that are encompassed within it. We know that many of the psalms were written by David, and in particular Psalm 22, written by David, follows by Psalm 23, where we see David says, The Lord is my shepherd, and followed by Psalm 24, where it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, and there is a coming king of glory who is entering into the courts of Jerusalem. This has caused individuals to recognize that in God's providential working, that these psalms were linked together because they provide a picture of this promised Messiah in his past work, his present work, and what will yet be done in the future. And noted that Psalm 23 reflects 
the reality that the promised Messiah is the shepherd of his people, and therefore we will not want, as he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, many have recognized that this grouping of three psalms is best known as the Shepherd's Trilogy. What we have in Psalm 24 is the promise of the shepherd coming again and recorded in 1 Peter chapter 5, the great shepherd who is coming to establish the kingdom and to bring about the uh, deliverance of his people. And there he is known of as the chief shepherd of the sheep. We find in Psalm 23, he is the shepherd who is watching over, directing, protecting, and providing for his sheep, as we would find in Hebrews chapter 13, as the great shepherd of the sheep who equips us for that which is pleasing to God. And then in Psalm 22, we find that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, recorded for us in John 10. So the Shepherd's Trilogy. Now, David is the author of all three of these psalms, understood the work of a shepherd very well. But what we find here in the providence of God, had it been done prior to Ezra, or at least when Ezra put the book of Psalms together in its present format, the grouping of these three became very significant, for we see the historically for us, past work of the Good Shepherd, his present work as the Great Shepherd, and then his future work in returning as the Chief Shepherd of his sheep, the Shepherd's Trilogy. When we look at Psalm 23, we find that this psalm is an expression by David of events that were happening in his life, and we need to remember that. Now, in some ways, he is going to use poetic figurative expressions to describe his helplessness in this situation. And we can speculate as to exactly when this happened in the life of David, but what we know is there are many occasions where David was running for his life, he was surrounded by his enemies, and that apart from the intervention of God to deliver him, His certain death was upon him. And so in this psalm, David is expressing his uh, need for God to help him in his desperate, hopeless situation. And that if God does not intervene and if God does not deliver, he will be consumed by his enemies. But we also find that this psalm is a picture of David's greater son, the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament because of how it relates in its figurative language to a literal fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his suffering on behalf of others. His statement on the cross is a quotation of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some have stated that it could very well be that he rehearsed the whole psalm while he is suffering in agony upon the cross and not just the statement of what we have as verse 1. We also know that he talked in the psalm, it talks about the fact, as it says in verse 6, that I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me, they sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag their head. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him as he was mocked by the individuals, particularly the religious leaders on the day in which he was executed. He says in this psalm that his strength is dried up like potsherd, verse 15, and his tongue cleaves to his uh, jaws. He says, a band of evildoers, verse 16, have surrounded me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is definitely a messianic psalm, and it is picturing in the events in the life of David and how he in poetic fashion expressed them of the realities of what would happen in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and as God fulfilled his purposes in having the Messiah to suffer on behalf of others that through his death we might be given eternal life. This psalm would be categorized as an individual lament. In other words, it is a cry for help in a desperate situation where David recognized that his own resources, his own strength had failed. There was nothing left within himself that could deliver him from this desperate plight where he is surrounded by his enemies. As we look at this lament, we know that when we study in the Bible a Hebrew expression of sorrow or lament in a circumstance, it always is encompassed, encompasses hope. There is never a hopeless situation for God's people. And woven through in this psalm, David expressed the fact that God was his hope, that God was his trust. Notice he says in verse um, 9, You are the one who brought me forth from my mother's womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth, and you have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. In verse um, 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword and my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. David expressed his confidence in God even though he was in this desperate situation. Typical in the fashion of how a lament song was put together. And in this song, one of the unique things is that it ends, it concludes with expressions of praise. For you notice that David says in verse 22, 
I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you and you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And that it's caused some individuals to say, well, there's an inconsistency with a true lament pattern uh, that you would find in the Psalms because this song turns into a praise song in its conclusion. And some have said, therefore, maybe it's two separate songs. Now, we know that not to be the case. But what we have included in this song is a portrayal of both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, the concentration in this song is the declaration of a righteous man. And what is so unique about the declarations that this man makes in Psalm 22, which would be David, but more so as it pictures the Lord Jesus Christ, is there's no confession of sin, of personal iniquity in this psalm. The situation is not that this individual is suffering because of wrongdoing that he had done. In the same way, there is no pronouncement of judgment upon his enemies. You find other psalms that would be called impregnatory psalms where the psalmist is pronouncing divine judgment upon the enemies of the Lord. There's no pronouncement of judgment in this song. And again, to me, very reflective of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It is a righteous man in a desperate, hopeless situation with certain death upon him unless the Lord answers and the Lord delivers. The reality is that God did answer and God did deliver David. And in a very real sense, God did answer and God did deliver the Lord Jesus, but through death, not from death. Isn't that right? As he accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. That being the case, Let's look at some of the content of this song. What we find is that the song basically divides itself into two specific divisions. There is first the petition of the psalmist for the help of the Lord in verses 1 through 21. And then there is the praise of the psalmist in gratitude or thanksgiving to the Lord for the answer that he has received from the Lord, and as David expresses it, as a reflection of his paying of the vow that he made to the Lord to publicly declare the praise that God deserves for how he had answered prayer. And that is found in verses 22 through 31. As we look at some of the details in this song, what you have initially is an expression of that initial cry in anguish to the Lord for his help found in verses 1 and 2. And what you will find repeated throughout this song is the use of three. There are three times where he's going to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 2, Oh my God, I cry to you. Three times where he expresses his personal relationship with God and his confidence in him. He also makes three expressions of why he is in such a dilemma or perplexity about his circumstance. 
The first is, why have you forsaken me? The second is, why are you not saving or delivering me? And the third would be, why are you not answering my prayer? A recognition that he has been repeatedly crying to God for intervention and help. But God hasn't been providing the answer. Instead of his circumstance becoming better, it seems to be deteriorating and he is becoming more concerned about his situation. He says, far from my deliverance or my salvation are the words of my uh, groaning, as my version has its translation. It is a word which could be translated far from the words of my roaring, like a beast would roar. It is an expression of the agony that he just can't contain himself. He has to cry out in his sorrow. And he says that this has been a repeated prayer that he has offered to God by day and also by night, but instead of his situation being alleviated, he is finding it becomes more precarious. In that, he recognizes confidence in the Lord. Verses 3 through verse 10. He says, Yet you are holy. How is it that God is holy? Now, the first thing we would say in our understanding is the fact that when we think of God, He's pure. He is sinless. He is without any taint of evilness in His being. But the essential meaning of the word holy is a word which means you are unique and there is no one or nothing like you. David is crying to God in prayer because the first aspect of what he recognizes about God is God is the living one. The reality that he is distinctly different from all the fabricated gods that the peoples of the earth have established as objects of worship. He's not a dumb idol. He is the ever-present living one. The second is that David recognizes he is the God who has made covenant arrangement with his people. And that's why he says, you are the one in which our fathers trusted. And what did God do? He delivered them. There's a recognition that God remains faithful to his word. One of the unique aspects, the holiness of our God, is the fact that what God has promised, God does. And God is the one that has promised, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. And God fulfills his word. He is the God who answers prayer. And often as we gather together to express new requests that we need to make of God, we recount the many times he has intervened and he has faithfully answered our, God, our prayers in the past. God is holy in his righteous purity. He is the being who is ever living, who has bound himself to his people by covenant and who is always moving to do what fulfills his word and is for their good. So David says in verse 5, they cried out, and what happened? They were delivered. Look at the contrast with David. He says, I've been crying out, and you're far from my deliverance. He says, you're the one in whom they trusted, 
And they were not disappointed. They weren't ashamed. You answered and intervened on their behalf. But notice now the contrast that is true of David. He says, but I am a worm and not a man. Now what is the idea of the, the categorizing himself as a worm? He is one that is considered useless, worthless, despised, looked down upon. Instead of being an individual that is given the recognition and the honor that belongs to human dignity, he is like a creature that you and I have no regard for, even though that little creature is doing everything to help your gardens, right? That worm, that insignificant. Also, that helpless being. You know why it's so easy to go fishing with a worm? No defense. I'm a worm. I have no resource within myself to cause individuals to acknowledge me, to take note of me, to give me any kind of honor. I'm a worm and not a man. And so what do they do? They despise me. They reproach me. They mock me. I'm the one that said I'm trusting in God. This can go all the way back to a previous occasion in the life of David when all of the Israel army was cowering before the Philistines. Here's the young boy who trusted in the Lord and gave them the deliverance from Goliath. And instead of being an object of their honor, he is now the one that they are ridiculing and despising. But David says... You're the one who caused me to trust you. And so I am still depending upon you as my God. So in verses 11 through 18, he expresses his circumstance now in the world. Don't be far from me, for trouble is near. How many individuals are coming to David's aid? There are none to help me. He's abandoned. He's alone. He is surrounded by his enemies. And David uses three different descriptive phrases of what his enemies are like. They are like the bulls of Bashan. Bashan is the northern country, kind of northeast of Galilee, very fertile. And boy, the cattle that grazed there were big, strong, healthy, fat bulls. Powerful beasts. I've been surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. Not only that, but they, verse 13, open their mouth wide at me as what? A raven, roaring lion. A ferocious beast of terror. And then he says in verse 16, dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. The dogs, pet lovers, I'm sorry, but are the scavengers. They're the ones that eat up the garbage. If you remember what happened to Jezebel when she was thrown down from the wall and Jehu trampled her underfoot with his horses, they went in and they feast and they said, you know, she was a queen, we ought to go back out and uh, give her a burial. They couldn't find anything because the dogs had torn her limb from limb and devoured her flesh. 
carried away her bones to their own little dens to gnaw on them. And the word that is translated, they pierce my hands and my feet, could also be translated, they tear at my hands and my feet, which you see the twofold meaning, because if you're trying to ward off a coyote, you know, a wolf, a dog, you're trying to protect yourself with your hands, kick at them with your feet, and there they are snapping at them and ripping at your extremities as they seek to devour you. So what's David's situation? My enemies are like strong bulls. There's no way to contend with them. They're ferocious animals like lions, and they keep nipping at my hands and my feet just ready to devour me. I'm like prey that has been totally overpowered by his enemy, and I have no hope. So he says of his own situation, verses 14 and 15, I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and it's melted within me. My physical strength is gone. My will to fight back has left me. I have no inner resource as well as the physical strength to contend with my situation. And so, as a defeated prey, as one conquered in battle, they take my possessions as their booty. They divide up my garments and cast lots for them. In verses 19 through 21, we find David calls upon the Lord again. He says, but thou, O Lord, don't be far off. Be to me, help, hasten to my assistance, deliver my soul from the sword. And notice how he brings those three animals back in the picture. The way in which I am picturing my enemy against me, he says... My only life from the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild ox, you answer me. The dog, the lion, the bull. There's a transition in this verse because the last phrase is not so much a petition, help me, but David's saying, in my difficult circumstance, you have answered my prayer, even though day and night before now, there was no answer, and it becomes the transition to the praise that is yet offered. God has heard, God has answered his prayer. What do we need to learn from this song? What's the perspective for us as God's people? Well, the first thing I want to say is I need to understand that this song is for you and for me if I'm one of God's children. And the reality is many are the afflictions of the righteous. And like is true of Job, where he said, I cry to you by day and I don't get an answer, and I call to you by night, I look in front, I look behind, but I can't find you. There will be events and things in your life where you feel abandoned by God. It's part of God's perfecting and purifying his people 
to find that our resources are not adequate to take care of our situation and our need, and our hope needs to be in the one who is our rock and our refuge and ever-present help in a time of trouble. It's not any different than what Paul would say of his own situation where he said that I may know him, right? Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. You know what else I want to know? The fellowship of his sufferings. And like David was abandoned as a picture of Christ being abandoned, so it will be for the people of God because we are considered but a sheep for the slaughter. But the beauty is that there is nothing that will ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. And you and I need to understand that the one who took up his cross said to his followers, take up your cross and follow after me. If you were of the world, the world would what? Love you. But because you're not of the world and I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. If they have done this to me, the green branch, how much more to you? A servant is not above his master. And what you and I need to understand that we should not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon us as if some unique thing were taking place. But we are going to share in the sufferings of Christ. Not in his sufferings to accomplish redemption, but in his suffering as far as rejected of men and persecuted by the wicked. God's people will go through experiences where we say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The other thing that we need to understand is that while there are things about Christ's suffering that you and I can uh, know we will share in and experience, there is an aspect to his suffering that we will never have as part of our experience. When Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was acutely aware of the fact that instead of receiving blessing and favor from the Father, he was alienated from him and abandoned by God for help. It's because the one who knew no sin became sin for us. And he is the one that carried and bore the curse upon himself so that he experienced the wrath of God in order that the people of God may never partake of that wrath. Boy, hallelujah, what a Savior. The great love of God who became man and dwelt among us, that he became the object of divine wrath and was abandoned by God and suffered eternal punishment, not for the wrongs that he had done, but because of your offenses, my offenses, for the wrath that we so justly deserve, he paid it all. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus the Lord. No wonder Charles Wesley said, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Is what you have reflected here is first understand if God takes you through those deep waters and times of trouble, it isn't because of his disdain for you, but it's because whom the Father loves, 
He chastens every son that he receives. You know why? Because he is going to conform his children to the image of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what needs to be done to prepare us for glory is what he brings to pass in our daily experience. And then there is that reality of his great compassion. This is amazing grace. God didn't need you. God certainly did not and does not need me. God quickly executed the pronouncement of judgment upon angels when they first sinned who are superior in their being to us. But here is this amazing grace of God that while we were dead in sin, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. That the song of the redeemed is the fact that while we like sheep had gone astray, it pleased the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief that through his wounds we are healed. And right now, And forevermore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Lord. That's this coming week. That's what we remember on God's Friday, Good Friday. When God accomplished the greatest work of all, the salvation and deliverance from sin for all his sheep. And as Christ said, no greater love has any man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. And so the honor and the praise and the glory, the boasting is not to ourselves, not to who we are or what he is, uh, we have done, but the reality that Jesus paid it all. And it's all to him I owe. Because while I was guilty and undone, In the guilt of my sin, he washed me white as snow. Let's pray.